Welcome back to another Wagner Group-focused bonus episode of Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Uh, wow, Ben. Uh, quite a day today. A lot of news going on. we got a Republican debate tonight and reports that uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin is dead. We'll get to all that in a minute, but we should, you know, quite a quite a day. He too will not be at the debate. <laughs> yeah, maybe he'll be playing. He's <laughs> yeah, playing yeah. hoops with uh, Doug Burgum. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so... We're obviously, uh, we are recording this at 4 p.m. on Wednesday afternoon. We want to do something quickly to tell you guys what we know, which are, here are the facts so far. So there was a plane crash in Russia. Ten people are dead. And according to Russian state news agencies, the passenger list included Yevgeny Prigozhin and Dmitry Utkin, who are the leaders of the Wagner Group, the private Russian mercenary force that we've talked about many times in this show. We're learning about all this in real time. We're relying on sources like Russian state media, uh, telegram channels that are linked to Wagner Group forces. So assume this story is going to evolve over time. Assume that at least some of these early reports are wrong. But what's been reported so far is that the jet was carrying 10 people, three crew members, seven passengers. All of them are dead. The Russian Ministry of Emergency Services said it was a private plane uh, flying from Moscow to St. Petersburg in the plane that the specific plane is one that Prigozhin has been linked to in the past. A Wagner linked telegram channel called Gray Zone reported that the jet was shot down by air defenses. There's some witnesses who said they heard two loud bangs before the plane started going down. So that would seem to suggest there was some sort of surface to air missile being fired. Uh, and there's a video on social media that shows the plane tumbling down from the sky and then others uh, went and, and videotaped the wreckage. Ben, it's worth noting that there's at least one Telegram channel saying that these reports are premature and that Prigozhin was on a different plane and that plane turned back around. Time will tell, I guess. Um, but, you know, if Prigozhin is dead, I think a lot of observers uh, were surprised that after the mutiny that Prigozhin and the Wagner Group staged in late June, that he had seemed to go unpunished. Uh, in July, Biden said, if I were he, I'd be careful what I ate. I'd be keeping my eye on my menu. This was during a news conference with Finland's president. In July, you pointed to this quote out earlier, uh, CIA director Bill Burns said, I think Putin is someone who generally thinks that revenge is a dish best served cold. If I were Prigozhin, I would fire my food taster. Uh, a few days ago, Prigozhin released a video where he said he was in Africa, making Russia even greater on all continents and Africa even more free. On July 27th, Prigozhin was photographed at a summit in St. Petersburg with some other African leaders. Uh, the Kremlin said that Putin and Prigozhin met on June 29th, uh, just days after the Wagner Group staged the mutiny that got them within 120 miles of Moscow. Um, but, you know, fast forward to today, Ben, it seems like he might be dead. Uh, Biden was asked about Prigozhin's death on Wednesday. Here's a quick clip. I was asked about this by you. I said, I'd be careful what I turned what I wrote in. I don't know for a fact what happened, but I'm not surprised. Do you think Putin was responsible? I mean, not much that happens when Russia and Putin not behind, but I don't know enough to know the answer. I've been working out for the last hour and a half. So that's kind of hard to hear, Ben, because you can really see the video. Biden is coming out of the gym. I think he's in California. He's wearing one of those half-zip half sweaters. He's holding a smoothie. And he gets asked by the press pool in like some parking lot what happened. And he's like, I don't know, guys. I've been working out for like half an hour. Prigozhin might be dead, but it's leg day. So, you know, I got to do what I got to do. Anyway, Ben, uh, like this to me is kind of the, the definition of, of shocking, but not surprising if Prigozhin is dead. But what's your reaction to what we've read so far? Yeah. First of all, the administration really likes food metaphors. Uh, I don't know if it's because Prigozhin's background is a caterer. Interesting, yeah. Um, look, I, I, I think shocking but not surprising is right, because I don't think any of us you know, thought that 
Prigozhin was uh, beyond the reach of retribution here. This is a, a system in which uh, many people tend to have strange one-person active accidents where they fall off of balconies, you mm-hmm. know. Um, that said, I mean, it did seem to me um, like Putin might have given Prigozhin a little bit more of a lease on life, um, in part maybe to kind of figure out, consolidate uh, what the Wagner group's resources are going to be. Like Putin's clearly been trying to integrate Wagner fighters into the regular army in Ukraine and clearly wouldn't want to lose the levers that he can pull into Africa and, and the Middle East through the Wagner group's operations. So, um, you know, it, a bit surprising that uh, after this kind of period of time in which he was popping up left and right, um, including a video in recent days where he claimed to be in Africa, um, <laughs> that he goes down like this. Um, I think there are a few things that stand out to me in initial reactions. The first is, you know, it, it does appear like, I, I, unless uh, there's a miraculous coincidence of an aviation accident, you know, that this plane was brought down, shot down or something. That, that's pretty, uh, that, that is pretty brute force, you know, to, to kill, uh, you know, reportedly 10 people on a yeah. plane like that. And as we'll get into, I think, you know, it wasn't just Pogosian. It seems like there are other members of the Wagner High Command. And so it feels like not only a message to Pogosian, you know, or at least a, a message to everyone else who watched Pogosian, um, but also maybe an effort to kind of decapitate a piece, at least, of the, the Wagner group. Um, so pretty dramatic here. This is beyond even just like a one person falling off a balcony thing. This is like, yeah. Well, let's, let's stick on that for a second. I mean, you're right. Putin has employed a lot of ways of killing people. People fall out of windows. Alexei Navalny was poisoned. Other people are just shot. Like, again, we're, we're kind of speculating here, but what kind of message do you think it sends to, to use an anti-aircraft missile uh, over Moscow, right? It's a combination of risky complicated, as high profile as you could possibly get? Like, what do you make of that choice? I think there's a couple of things. Yeah, you're right. I mean, this is a plane that was going from Moscow to St. Petersburg, right? So this is like over the heart of Russia. And it kind of militarizes the manner in which Putin is repressing people and exacting revenge. You know, it's kind of assuming it was shot down. This is like a military operation, essentially, on Russian soil. Um, and, And that, you know, I think foreshadows like an even more brutal and militaristic turn uh, uh, in terms of Putin's repression. Um, I think it may speak to the threat he felt from Prigozhin and the Wagner group generally, that he may have not just killed Prigozhin, but a bunch of people uh, that that were on that plane as well. Um, The fact that it took place, and we'll get into the fact that he also demoted a very important general um, who allegedly knew of the mutiny, may have participated in it, or at least knew about it, that suggests that this wasn't like a freak accident, right? This felt coordinated, like, you know, the same day they demote this general, um, they uh, shoot down this plane. Um, Sergei Sorovkin was the, the Sorovkin, general. Yeah. yeah. While Putin is, you know, uh, uh, commemorating this, you know, uh, victory of uh, the Red Army over the Nazis in World War II, which is, you know, striking pretty deep chords in the Russian national memory. So there's a lot going on here in terms of, this not just being like, a, you know, your typical assassination of a Putin opponent, but, you know, kind of a militaristic message about who's in charge here. I'll say this one thing, Tommy, like in the initial days uh, of the mutiny, um, you know, there was some hyperbolic commentary. This is the end for Putin, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, now I think I'm beginning to see um, some hyperbolic commentary of Putin stronger than ever. You know, um, I, I, I'm going to zag off of that. I 
I don't think it's a good thing for Vladimir Putin that there was a military mutiny and then all this uncertainty. And then he had to shoot down a plane that includes a longtime close oligarchic associate of his who commands the most lethal military mercenary force in Russia and beyond. Um, that, that's not like a win for Putin. <laughs> like this is a guy, you know, yes, he's in charge. And yes, there's nobody, you know, uh, who's poised to uh, that we know of right now uh, overthrow him. But this is a guy who, like, should be focused on this kind of full-scale invasion he launched of neighboring state, who's clearly, you know, uh, had to focus on um, not just killing Prigozhin, but sending a message uh, of paranoia and fear um, to everybody in the Russian elite uh, to back off. To me, that that's a system that is cracking, actually. That's a system that, you know, is 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 running out of steam in some ways. It doesn't mean Putin's going to be gone tomorrow at all. He's, he is clearly in charge. But I don't know. I think this whole episode from from the open fighting between Prigozhin and the Russian military to the mutiny itself to this is like, this is not how Putin would have drawn up um, how he wanted his internal politics to look uh, deep into the second year of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that, you know, he probably didn't anticipate having to shoot down his own guys (laughs) over (laughs) Moscow. That's not ideal. I definitely think this sends a message from Putin that's like, you know, you guys said I was weekend. I'm still here, guys. You know, and, and I just played a trump card. Um, it is very weird to me. Look, Prigozhin could be alive. These reports could all be wrong. There's there's this Telegram channel saying he was on a different plane. That plane turned around and went back to St. Petersburg. I'm not saying I believe that, but, like, we're all open to all possibilities here. We're working with deeply uh, flawed media sources. It is very weird to me, though, that you had this extraordinary event happen over Moscow. A, a plane is shot down or near Moscow. And state media just immediately produce the flight manifest for a, a, a 10-person, you know, private jet. You know, that's interesting and fast and convenient. Yeah. Uh, you know, what it reminded me of is uh, when Navalny was poisoned uh, in the airport um, in Siberia. Uh, and th- so he's poisoned, presumably in the airport, and then he uh, you know, passes out on the plane, has this horrific episode. The The video of that, of him in the airport, like miraculously made it onto Russian media, like immediately, you know? And and so uh, the fact that, you know, they clearly had a plan to get this information out quickly. You know? um, again, we don't know if Prigozhin pops up alive, like, man, that guy's a legend, uh, not in a good way. Um, but uh, if this is what it looks like, it does feel like, they shot this down. They had the information about the passenger manifest out immediately. These videos materialized immediately, albeit on Wagner channels, uh, it seems like. Um, and yeah, like this is a guy that likes people to know. He doesn't come out and announce, I've killed this guy. But he wants people to get the message, you know, and message definitely received uh, above all by Yigivni Prigozhin, but but also by the rest of the world. And, and most importantly, I think anybody inside of Russia who might be contemplating a challenge of Putin. Yeah, and I think to, the, to your question about what does this mean about sort of Putin's relative strength or weakness or strength or weakness of the state, I do think it matters what happens with the rest of these Wagner forces. I mean, it is interesting that he, Putin or whoever took out Prigozhin waited to do this until the bulk of the Wagner guys were sitting in Belarus and are, you know, it's probably a lot harder to, uh, you know, Mountain Insurrection 2.0 or March Towards Moscow from over there. And there are some reports of, you know, uh, maybe people locking down the borders in the region like Lithuania, Poland, other places sort of out of concern about Wagner coming across the border. Um, ben, you mentioned uh, that that uh, 
Prigozhin's number two was on this flight. It's a guy named uh, Dmitry Utkin. He's a former lieutenant colonel in the GRU. He is, you know, you often see photo. There's one photo of him that's all over the internet where he has his shirt off and you can see Nazi tattoos on his upper shoulders. He was known to sign his name with two lightning bolts, which was the insignia of the Nazi SS. He was uh, like kind of the field commander of the Wagner group. And Prigozhin was the CEO and, and financier. So it really is like the 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 big boss, the overseer, the guy with the connections to the Russian state who's now dead and the battlefield commander who is sort of in the trenches leading the leading the troops is now dead. And the question I have is, um, are the remaining Wagner forces loyal to them or are they, and are they going to do something or are they just mercenaries for hire who will kind of go along with the next guy? I think that's a big open question. Yeah. I mean, first of all, these are like, you know, this is not a pleasant guy, this Nazi. Uh, and, you know, we, we should note like Wagner group because Wagner was Hitler's favorite composer. <laughs> you know, like it's not a subtle, not subtle, uh, all, yeah. not subtle messaging from these guys. Um, I, I, it's a really, really important and good question um, because there's both the question, again, of like, are Wagner guys going to be in the fight in Ukraine? And what happens to the Wagner network in places like Africa? Now, what we saw in that mutiny is it seemed like these guys were really loyal to Prigozhin because when Prigozhin was like, hey, let's march on Moscow and shoot down some Russian military helicopters, um, a bunch of guys went with They're him. They're like, cool, boss. Um, yeah. It, yeah, it wasn't Prigozhin who shot, shot down the helicopters, right? So the, clearly there is some core that is has some degree of loyalty to Prigozhin himself. Um, I'm most interested in the international operations. I'm sure they don't want like to lose the Wagner fighters in Ukraine, but they'll, you know, draft some more people. They'll pull some more convicts out of prison and throw some people as cannon fodder into the fight in Ukraine. But there's a pretty complicated network in Africa that encompasses everything from, you know, essentially running the Central African Republic as a kind of Praetorian guard for the president there, controlling mining interests, uh, getting close to these coup leaders uh, in the Sahel that we've talked about, running very sophisticated disinformation campaigns in parts of Africa, controlling media channels. Um, this is not you know, straightforward stuff. And what's interesting is what Wagner allowed Putin to do is have a cutout from the Russian government. So it was like, you know, if Blackwater, the U.S. military contractor of Iraq infamy, you know, was doing something and the, the U.S. government itself wasn't necessarily the one doing it. And, and that means it wasn't the FSB or the Russian military that was running these operations in Africa. It, it strikes me that it, unless he has like a different person from within Wagner that he can elevate, who can kind of keep that machine running, um, it'd be a pretty complicated piece of business to kind of absorb the entire Wagner infrastructure into the Russian state. And by the way, it would also raise some interesting questions of like, under what basis, therefore, would these Russian troops, not Wagner troops, be in all these African countries? Um, you know, that that's a different flavor. Uh, it may seem like a distinction without difference, but it, it matters because all of a sudden, therefore, you have like Russian military occupations of multiple countries. Um, so that's the most interesting thing for me to watch in the coming weeks is how do they are they able to absorb this? Do they lose some of it, that capability? Um, you know, uh, are, are, are there going to be defections are going to be Wagner guys crossing the border into Poland? Um, you know, th there's a lot. That it has to play out here. Yeah, and I think it's worth remembering that the breaking point for Prigozhin, 
that led to the Wagner Group mutiny was the Russian Ministry of Defense saying that all Wagner forces had to sign a contract with the Russian military and essentially get absorbed into the Ministry of Defense's operations, which would have stripped all of Prigozhin's power away. Uh, And it seems like that's what ultimately led him to lead this ill-fated march on Moscow. But Ben, a a lot of folks in the Pod Save the World Discord were asking a version of the question, like, what happens to the Wagner Group now? What happens to their operations in Africa? Um, I also, you know, sort of imagined this from like the African junta leader point of view. I mean, imagine if you're sitting in Mali or Burkina Faso or Niger, where you're kind of waiting for uh, Wagner forces to ride to the rescue uh, because you just started this coup a few weeks ago and you probably need some help by now. They must be wondering, like, what what's going on? Because, you know, you there's no way that, that Putin would risk an operation like this by, like, communicating in advance to some of these uh, Wagner proxies around the world, like, hey, some shit's going to go down, hang tight. Yeah, I mean, the ones in Ukraine, you know, given how much Russian military presence there is there, I I assume that their ability to kind of absorb and swallow up any Russians with guns in Ukraine um, is something they can do. Now, to be clear, though, that's not how this war started. Like, Putin has created these different fiefdoms over time. The military, the GRU, the FSB, intelligence service, the Wagner Group, Kadyrov, the Chechen uh, warlord, essentially, with his own guys. And at the beginning of the war, all these different forces were fighting and operating in Ukraine. Clearly, they decided to try to consolidate that. That makes sense. But, you know, they're building that plane while they're flying it, as it were, in this, you know, war in Ukraine that's not gone exactly as they wanted to go. But there, I think, you know, they're, they're, they're seeking to kind of impose Russian military command order over things and will probably be able to do so. They may just lose a bit of cap- capability in, in, in that. Um, I think, you know, by the way, that's a risk for Putin in a way, too, because one of the reasons why he liked all these fiefdoms is he didn't like anybody to get too strong who might challenge him. So if he's beginning to centralize command, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, the generals might uh, become a threat to Putin sometime down the line as they get stronger. The Africa piece, um, I don't, that to me is the mystery because uh, like the, um, now I imagine, you know, there are Wagner guys that are currently in these countries just doing what they're doing. But, you know, imagine being a Wagner guy. Um, a lot of these guys are like longstanding relationships, loyal to Prigozhin. And, you you know, you check your Telegram channel and you find out your boss just got like, yeah. whacked in a plane crash. Uh, it might be kind of tempting to just like, you know, grab some of the stuff from the mines and disappear. Yeah. <laughs> grab know, a couple of giant diamonds and get out of I'm not there. sure I'd want to be hanging out <laughs> waiting for my new commander, you know? No. So again, the best case scenario for Putin is that he somehow has some other person who's high up in the Wagner thing that he's he has been working with him uh, who's set to take the the helm here. But I have to imagine at a minimum, it's disruptive for them. Yeah, and there might be some uh, new listeners to the show today, just to remind you who uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin is. This was a guy who spent uh, nearly a decade in prison prison when he was younger for choking a woman during a robbery. When he got out, he started selling hot dogs. He got into the supermarket catering and restaurant business in St. Petersburg. That's where he met and started working with Putin. That's why people call him Putin chef. There's literally photos of Prigozhin serving food to world leaders, including George W. Bush. Um, Later, Prigozhin started the Wagner Group, and he had his mercenaries fighting in Ukraine and Syria and all across Africa. 
But he's also grown this massive business empire that stretches across, you know, more than a dozen countries. The New York Times did a big investigation into all his various shell companies and the intermediaries. They include a chocolate museum in St. Petersburg, a gold mine in the Central African Republic, oil and gas ventures uh, off the Syrian coast. There's movies, there's beer, there's vodka, there's timber, there's mining, there's diamond. He was also indicted by a federal grand jury uh, in the United States for interfering in the 2016 election through the Internet Research Agency. Agency, that troll farm that we all remember from 2016. Uh, he was sanctioned by the U.S. again for activities in Crimea. This was a guy who was recruiting uh, out of prisons and basically getting these untrained men to sign up to join the Wagner Group. And he was throwing them at the front lines in Bakhmut as cannon fodder. So, you know, he has this sprawling business empire. It extends beyond the Wagner Group to all these other places. And now it does just sort of lead the question to what happens to all of it. We have no idea. Yeah, and it's a very off-books kind of thing, right? So, like, you know, they'll they'll help take over, you know, oil fields in Syria, and then they'll take a 20% cut from, like, the, you know, the, the revenue. Or I met, I met a Syrian re- recently who had left uh, his hometown because, like, the Russians took over the port and were kind of running the business uh, at the port. And I, I can't imagine that those guys are you know, using regular accounting here, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, so, your, your kid's so, probably not going to be like, hey, can I please have the deed to the chocolate factory? Uh, no, it, yeah, exactly. Way. There's not a bookkeeper for this kind of stuff. So, yeah, like it's it's a, an illicit uh, mercenary empire. And, um, uh, and, and so that's a harder thing to kind of wrest control of than, you know, the operations of like a, a military unit per se. Um, but clearly Putin felt like this is, it didn't matter. Like even if he, you know, suffers some complications in managing that. Um, he could not allow this guy to live. Uh, he wanted to send this message. He wanted to do it relatively quickly uh, after the mutiny. And, you know, here we are, uh, you know, left to, to wonder what the next chapter is here. You mentioned this at the top end. So while this was happening, Putin was at a concert commemorating uh, World War II in the Kurtz region near Ukraine. What do we make of, do you think that's a coincidence that Putin's like giving a speech at this massive sort of terrifying looking memorial as the the split screen is, you know, uh, Prigozhin's plane swirling down and crashing on the ground? So again, we don't know what's in Putin's head. We don't know exactly even what happened here. If I were to guess in this kind of, you know, I think Biden's point uh, with the smoothie in hand, that that stuff doesn't happen in Russia without Putin knowing or or in, in coincidence. To me, the the most likely scenario is that this was orchestrated. You've got Putin commemorating a battle where the Red Army defeated Nazi Germany. Putin wants to associate himself with the legacy of strong and great Russian leaders, um, and, and, and including, importantly, the victory over um, Nazi Germany. And he's cast the Ukrainians as the latest flavor of Nazis that have to be vanquished on behalf of kind of the Russian Empire. So there he is kind of playing the role of the Russian strongman, the embodiment of the Russian state, the embodiment of this you know, history that included great sacrifice militarily. The Russian army, obviously, the Red Army lost millions and millions of people in World War II, uh, dwarfing even the losses they have in Ukraine. While he's doing that, he's demoting uh, like the general who was disloyal and literally killing uh, the guy that challenged him. 
that feels like uh, a, like a, a Wagner-esque symphony. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a hell of a coincidence if it's a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, it's a hell of a coincidence. Yeah. Um, uh, someone on Discord named uh, Brava Centauri uh, asks, imagine you're sitting at your desk at the White House when news like this breaks. What's the first thing you do? The second, how does the day play out differently if it does at all? Great question. I mean, you got to figure that Jake Sullivan or the Deputy National Security Advisor, John Feiner, is immediately calling some sort of situation room meeting where you're getting together the State Department, all the intel agencies, uh, and just saying, what do we know? They're all probably checking Twitter, (laughs) is the truth, at least for the first 24 hours before you can kind of actually covertly reach out to sources in a safe way or collect some or mine all the intelligence that's been collected through signals intelligence in a way that actually shows you something, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, my, you know, look, look uh, you know, after the annexation of Crimea and the, you know, Russian move into eastern Ukraine in the Obama years, there were incidents like the shoot down of uh, a Dutch uh, passenger plane, MH17, over Ukraine, where, or, or the assassination of Boris Nemtsov um, that we talked about in another Russia, where I remember, like, yeah, like you described, you you just go into the situation room. There's like a kind of stand, the, the deputies meeting. You know the the deputies of all the agencies and the NSC gather in this situation room, and a lot of that and it becomes kind of an open ended rolling meeting where you're gathering information. And to your point, like okay, so what are they doing? Like part of it is monitoring the media, monitoring Twitter. A lot of this stuff is popping up on Telegram. Part of it is asking the intelligence community to go through everything that they know and what they don't know. Like, you know, did we see any indication that this was going to happen? Has there been any intelligence in the last couple of days about uh, that, that, that foreshadowed this? They're definitely reaching out to the Ukrainians. Uh, so I'm sure that they're making a plan, like, you know, call the Ukrainians. Like, what did they know? Is there anything they know about this? What do they think is going on did, here? Did you see one of, uh, one of the, a top Ukrainian advisor just linked to the song Highway to Hell? That was his on Twitter. Yeah, it was good Ukrainian trolling. They love um, that shit. Uh, yeah, uh, but also, like, this Africa piece, I bet, comes up, too. So I, I think that they, they're probably also, like, trying to surge resources, you know, diplomatic intelligence resources to try to understand, is this going to have any impact in the next, you know, couple of days in terms of what we're seeing around Wagner operations in Africa? So the, the, the first day when something like this happens, a lot of it is about, like, how do we piece together as much information as we can? Who do we need to be in touch with? You know, um, you know, African leaders, uh, Ukrainians, Europeans, liaison intelligence services. What is our public comment on this? And, and the NSC comment was kind of like, you know, we've seen the reports. It's not surprising. And that yeah. was like a it was kind of a. it was kind of a rush. It was a kind of a Ukrainian style troll, albeit not quite as uh you know, yeah. dramatic as the ACDC, it, you know? It was Adrian Watson. She said, uh, the administration has seen the reports about the plane crash in Russia. If confirmed, no one should be surprised. Yeah. So it makes for a more interesting day. But the reality is it's not like we are a player in this. You know, we, we're not inside the Russian system. I mean, maybe a lot of reaching out to, to Russia experts, people, you know, just trying to gather information as you can. Yeah. Um, I will be very interested to watch in the coming days how... Russian state media responds 
for a while, Prigozhin was, you know, kind of like a, a hero in sort of the military blogger set. He was celebrated. You know, a lot of the, the Wagner Group's victories were celebrated on state TV. That turned pretty quickly when he launched an insurrection against Moscow, against Vladimir Putin. <laughs> but it'll be worth watching how they talk about what happened to him, whether, you know, Putin is given credit publicly on TV. You know, you and I sort of speculate on this. We don't have, you know, we're not doing any, we don't have uh, Ann Seltzer doing Iowa polls in Russia for us to, to figure out these things. But it seemed like Prigozhin might be pretty popular uh, among sort of like rank and oh, yeah. file Russians because he kind of talks like a real human being and was on the front lines filming these videos and cursing out the elites that everybody probably hates. So it's important to see how this kind of unfolds. Yeah. And we've talked about that far right you know, military blogger, you know, uh, set of people. And, and Putin recently had one of those guys tossed in prison, pretty prominent guy that uh, was part right. of the support him. for separatists in Eastern Ukraine. And like, it, it, what's their reaction? Is there, is there, you know, you want to look for any inkling of any backlash to this um, from the Russian far right, or, you know, ultra nationalist right? Is someone going to try to make a play to be the new Prigozhin and be taped videos? So like, you know, it, it is... It's not like totally risk free for Putin. Um, I don't think he's going to face a mutiny anytime soon. But like, you know, does does the kind of sentiment that Prigozhin tapped into this frustration with the Russian military command and the conduct of the war combined with this kind of ultra toxic masculinity, Russian nationalism, like are other people going to make a play to be that person? So you'd be looking at all that. Yeah. And the last thing I'm I'm interested to see is or I bet a lot of people were wondering is what impact might this have on the war in Ukraine? My understanding from listening to military experts, and I don't ever pretend to be one, is that the the Wagner forces were mostly doing offensive operations in places like Bakhmut, and then largely were kind of pulled off the battlefield. A lot of the the most experienced guys, I think, are now up in Belarus. So I don't know that you know, the Russian forces are about to lose a lot of guys if, you know, the the Wagner forces pack up and leave at this point. I think the Russian military is kind of dug in a lot of these trenches and they're doing defensive operations. But who knows? We'll, we'll find out. Yeah, I guess, you know, Bakhmut, I, like I, it's, it's interesting how much uh, Russian manpower may have left Bakhmut. I think on the Russian military front, um, the, Sorovkin, the general who got, you know, shit canned and may have his own accident, I don't know. You know, he he by all accounts had been pretty effective. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in coming in and helping to kind of create these defensive lines, and um, and so you know when, when you're uh, when you're losing uh, Prigozhin and his guys, and you're demoting this general and probably taking him off the field, like that may have some impact over time, right? Um, in terms of uh, the conduct of the war, but that's probably not something you're going to see quickly. Yeah. I, I should say, Ben, that uh, one of the Discord questioners who asked about how this incident's being sort of reported and viewed in Russia uh, has the name Hannah Worldo 9981 on Discord, which I know that's not my wife because she spells it with two H's and she doesn't listen to this show. But, um, you know, we really appreciate you uh, being a part of the Discord community here, Hannah. Thank you, Hannah. Uh, yeah. Or, uh, you know, Hannah, uh, who works with me, a uh, friend of the pod yeah. as well. I don't know. Yeah, it could be we your have Hannah. a bunch of Hannahs. Yeah, yeah. M- M- Hannah Vitor is kind of like I don't know, man. I like keep it, <laughs> yeah, I like no, keep it on I Wednesdays. I can't see Hannah. <laughs> I, I can't see her slipping into the Discord. Uh, no, no, no. Um, well, that's all I got. Obviously, we did this uh, very quickly because we, I don't know, just wanted to talk about what we knew. I, I imagine we might do more bonus content than to, uh, on Thursday or Friday if there's more to report or just dig deep on on uh, for Wednesday of next week. But anything else you want to add before we wrap? 
I think the only thing I'd say is like part of what's interesting is we live in this kind of crazy, you know, news cycle stuff. And, um, you know, the war has been going on. The full scale invasion was February 22nd. So it's been like a year and a half. And just think of how much stuff has changed, like how many surprises there have been, how many twists and turns. It's a reminder, you know, that stuff that was unthinkable six months ago like the idea that Wagner would march on Moscow <laughs> and then Prigozhin be shot down in a plane. If I told you, you know, that's not totally surprising today to learn that news. But if I told you, you know, at the beginning of this calendar year, hey, guess what's going to happen? Um, you'd be like, what the fuck? So I think it's a reminder that whether we're talking about the battlefield state in Ukraine or the state of Russia's internal politics, this is when you start a war like this, you don't know how it's going to end. Putin doesn't know how it's going to end. And and I, I, that's why I want to end on like this note of like because I was reading these takes of like well actually no like Putin's stronger than ever like uh, I, you know it, there's a lot this this suggests a degree of uncertainty inside of Russian politics yes Putin is the strong man on top of a bunch of corrupt rotted out fiefdoms but this is not like a cohesive system that is functioning you know there's not like a political party uh, this is not like the the communist party of china or the old soviet politburo this is putin sitting on top of an elite that is made up of a bunch of self-interested corrupt motherfuckers uh, like yeah. kidney prigozhin and I don't know. Like, I, I wouldn't be buying stock in that system right now um, when planes are getting shot down. I also think it's kind of this mafia-style hit, right? Like, and there's something about the guy going down on a private jet. It's kind of a metaphor for the entire Russian oligarchy. You know, like, he's got the private jet, but he still gets shot down by the czar. Yeah, the, the mega the yacht would be the only, like, sort of better example. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. Um, Putin is a mob boss, you know, he's sort of got all these like capos that he's, you know, allows to operate and fight each other because that kind of keeps him on top. And he just took one out. But yeah, there's there's a lot of risk to that. I guess listeners might ask uh, or wonder, why do you guys uh, dunk on Vivek Ramaswamy so hard? Because you hate the blob and you hate the kind of like boring standard national security people. And he's at least trying to say things differently. And for me, it's because he's just so unbelievably arrogant and like doesn't know what he doesn't know. And if anything, four years in the White House taught me, it's humility and how little control you actually have even when you're the president of the United States and how unpredictable world events are. So I'm with you. Like anyone offering a hot take on Twitter who thinks they know exactly how things are going to play out from here, like you, they're full of shit. Unfollow that person. That's a really good point, just to dunk on Vivek one more time before the debate. (laughs) Like, because keep in mind what Vivek has been arguing, which is something, by the way, we're going to hear more of, which is that he's, his argument is literally we should give Putin like the chunk of Ukraine he has in exchange for a deal in which he breaks his military alliance with China and makes him deal with us. Like this, that that presumes that Vladimir Putin is trustworthy. This kind of yeah, yeah. He's like the, a guy in like a VC tech deal with Vivek. Right, he's like, a rational actor with this yeah. guy is like a brutal megalomaniac. Yeah. You know. Um, and, and so, so the conversation has to take that into account. And to be, yes, to be clear, I learned that the hard way over eight years. You know, we tried to do self-interested, rational deals with Putin. And what you learn at the end of the day is like, this is not a, this is, a, this guy is about one thing and one thing only, which is his own power and his own kind of dreams of grandeur. And anything in, in his way is going to get plowed over. Yep. And that's why I think you have to be quite skeptical of, uh, of the efficacy of that kind of diplomacy with somebody like this. Yeah, yeah. 5D chess doesn't really work with someone like Vladimir yeah. Putin. Um, all right, well, that's it for us for today. Uh, if there's more 
big news. Maybe we'll do this again this week or maybe we'll wait till next week. But thanks for listening and uh, holy shit. Holy shit. Yeah, and join the Discord. Get yeah, on join the, the Discord. Discord. Hannah, Discord's fun. Yeah, come see Hannah Worldo and uh, my my guy. Uh, there's a guy named Dude Guy Pal who has some great questions. Alexandra had some great questions. And then Brava Centauri. So thank you all. I mean, many, many more. I shouldn't have, shouldn't have named any names. Now we're going to get in trouble. But those are some ones yeah. that I wrote down. All right. Thanks, guys. Later. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Audio support by Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Phoebe Bradford, who upload our episodes and videos to youtube.com slash podsavetheworld. Thanks to Saul Rubin and Rebecca Rottenberg for production support. Our intern is Naomi Bierenbaum. Thank you.